0: Excuse me while I fennel my ward money into an MBA. This week, a councillor took some heat for some questionable use of his ward funds.
1: And absolutely nothing else about Edmonton was hot. We'll talk about LRT stations as refuge from the cold, and business owners' chilly response to the closure of 95th Avenue. Hi, I'm Troy. I'm Mac. And we're Speaking Speaking Municipally.
0: Municipally. Welcome back to Speaking Municipally, episode 24. Four, We are here in the throes of the polar vortex, and I mean, I'm just glad to have social interaction after being trapped in my house for several weeks, seems like months or years. But Max here, and we're going to start with a rapid fire segment. A new 11-story building called The Wedge has been approved on Jasper Ave and 103 Street this week. The 34-unit building will have a unique design and no on-site parking at all. Unlike every other development in Edmonton, the parking did not become a wedge issue.
1: Northland's Coliseum continues to sit empty and unused, costing taxpayers $1.5 million per year. Despite lofty proposals to redevelop the facility into a junior hockey training facility, or a prison-like panopticon of condos, those plans were deemed too surface level and were parked. Clearly, the only reason the land hasn't been purchased and redeveloped is because the city hasn't yet offered it to impart. It is the Edmonton way. Like a phoenix, all Edmonton developments start as a surface parking lot and through time, trauma, fire and fury will all eventually return to their natural state of gravel parking lots.
0: While the EEDC likes to promote Edmonton as a great place to live and do business, inexorably by touting the way we embrace our winter city environment, the ice fishing trip EEDC went on was in their inboxes. The corporation lost $375,000 in a scam, prompting council this week to vote to audit them in 2019 instead of 2020 as scheduled. This continues the rough go at it that EEDC has been having after the Innovation
1: Hub plan was caught and released. Speaking Municipally is a member of the Alberta Podcast Network, powered by ATB. This week, we're going to tell you about Let's Do Coffee, which is a podcast produced by the Moji Center for New Venture and Student Entrepreneurship at Nate. It is hosted by Daniel Van Velen, and each episode features an interview with a student entrepreneur or Nate alumnus. They dive into topics that explore their challenges, questions, and fears involved in operating their companies. Episodes generally come out every two weeks, and you can find that at nate.ca slash
0: so for the first topic of the day, I want to set the scene, all right? It's 2017. Counselor Dave Loken is a shoe in to win Ward 3. And then this up-and-coming young whippersnapper named John D for Ward 3, friend of the podcast, he shows up with his $12,000 budget, slaps up some signs and some conservative rhetoric, and ends up winning by very thin margin, but unseating the incumbent. Now let's flash forward couple years, he's into his term. He's had a rough go at it, I'd say, in the first couple years. There were some incidents. And then um, it was an uneventful this week, right?
1: Oh, yeah. He wishes it was uneventful. Uh, the big story that everyone's been talking about today, we're recording this on Thursday, is that good old John D. from Ward 3 chose to use money from his discretionary ward budget uh, to pay for his executive MBA. So to the tune of $44,000 of taxpayers' money to pay for his own Education.
0: So every counselor, they get about $180,000. That's for ward expenses. You know, it's discretionary funding. It's a counselor needs to be able to do their job. So you know, bus passes or hosting events, little incidental fees that come up. This comes from the fund. As well as their staff, as you pointed out. Their staff, yeah. So when you actually look, all of this data is public. Most counselors don't even spend their $180,000. Typically, a counselor's office is sitting between the hundred dollars and maybe $140,000. However, the staff for a counselor's office comes from that budget. So if a counselor has an EA and maybe a couple part-time RAs, most of that budget is gone. Uh, specifically, I like to draw attention to Andrew Nack's, uh disclosure for 2018. He spent a total of $116,000 of his hundred and eighty dollars uh, with... 115000 of that being his personnel. And then he spent an additional $466 on bus passes and 600 bucks on some cell phones.
1: Better rein that in, Counselor Knack. Ward 1 resident's going to be upset. But
0: we're not talking about Counselor Knack. We're talking about John D. from Ward 3. So basically, what he, he posted a blog post about January 11th. It was a month ago, and to not much fanfare. I read the blog post when it came out and thought, eh, cool. In the blog post, he essentially said, I'm doing an MBA, I'm going to enhance my role as a counselor, and you know this will allow me to use business acumen to better make city decisions and hold administration to account, which all very reasonable rhetoric. Uh, What he didn't mention was the cost of his executive MBA, which at the U of A is about $67,000. Now, he said he would pay about a third of it, which leaves about, you said, $44,000 on the taxpayer's bill.
1: And that's just the financial cost. The other Cost, of course, associated with taking an executive MBA is the time that that education requires you to put in. And how can you be a full-time counselor and pursue an executive MBA at the same time and do both things well? And not to get too much into John D's personal life, but he's not just a counselor
0: and an executive MBA student. He's got a new baby on the way that's due, I believe, in April. He's a military reservist that's still active, so there's training and meetings and all sorts of things associated with that. How does one be effective at all four of those jobs? Because we've talked to counselors, you and I, most counselors are they're spending their 60, 70 hour weeks. They're busy and they're burned out just being a counselor. I don't know how you have time to do all of this.
1: And the thing about this issue this week is, uh, you know, people were obviously rightly upset about it. It's a huge amount of money. It's the timing partly, right? This comes after a very contentious budget cycle where we were talking a lot about having to cut costs, how we were going to have to rein in spending. It also comes in the same week as a proposal came forward to council services to modify, renovate the council offices in City Hall to the tune of at least half a million dollars, all the way up to 5.2 million dollars. Council very wisely, I think, uh, voted that down and, and I think they approved $25,000 to put in a glass door to help with noise or something like that. But, you know, it doesn't. it's not a good look for a counselor in this current situation, this current context to want to spend so much money on a personal benefit. And I, I don't think there's any argument to be made here that he'll benefit as a counselor from taking this MBA. I mean, sure, anyone getting an education and improving their skills is a, is a good thing. And, and some counselors do spend part of their budget on professional development. But not an entire MBA degree. That feels like something you you want to earn so you can go and find a job, a high paying job, uh, and to do that at taxpayers' expense, I think is is really inappropriate. And I'm I'm, it's really surprising to me that he thought it would be okay and that initially he defended this this decision. So we're gonna jump back to Troy's reaction to this story. Which what was it? Quote: This is a cool non non issue.
0: Yeah, I mean. <laughs> So I got a text about this last night and the money, the the amount was high. All right. I'm not going to defend that spending $67,000, but let's jump into hypothetical fairyland where instead of doing an executive MBA, which is just basically executives churned through the school of business to profit the U of A, let's do a reasonable undergraduate degree at the U of A. Let's say, assuming John D didn't already have an urban planning background, he's going to a U of A for an undergraduate degree in urban planning. I don't think anyone can argue that that doesn't help as a counselor to have a degree in urban planning. Sure, And a degree, you know, it's what, $6,000 a term. And he's going to be, if it's a four-year degree, he's only got two years left. He's expensing a total of, we'll say generously, you know, fifteen dollars or $20,000 for this entire thing. Is that a problem in your eyes? Is that is that too much of a personal benefit? Is that an inappropriate expense?
1: I think it is. I mean, what I tweeted earlier was that clearly the policy needs to change. He defended himself by saying that no policy has been broken here, no rules or regulations have been broken, and I think that points out that we've got a problem with the policy. Well, there is no actual policy, is there? No, that's the other thing. So one of the things that went forward to council services this week was a counselor's expenses policy. Uh, the current policy, which was uh, in quotes in the report, was approved in 1991, but it's not official one of the things that was proposed was that counselors' expenses for training uh, could be used from their discretionary budget, even if it was for personal reasons. There was no mention in the revised policy about a cap, let's say, or a limit. But I think if you look at how most councillors have used their budget, you know, they're covering conferences that aren't already in the travel budget, like AUMA's annual conference or the FCM conference, right? Which I'm going to interrupt to say that's a
0: really interesting point because, uh, you know, when John D. said, oh, I'm going to cover a third of this, right. of my personal thing, and I'm not going to attend the FCM as a way of, you know, balancing the books. FCM is a separate budget. all count- It doesn't even come from the counselors right.
1: slush funds. So, yeah. It was a little disingenuous from John D. A little bit. I mean, I I think your hypothetical is certainly more aligned with the work of a counselor. I think that would be a much more appropriate degree to go and get to help you with the work of being a counselor. I don't think it changes the time equation, right? If it's a full-time job to be a counselor, and it's more than a full-time job to be a counselor and to do it well, uh, I don't see how you can do that degree at the same time, especially given the other things that you've got going on, potentially. Um, uh, But more than that, I mean, I, I feel like he just, has no sense of what's appropriate or not. And there's some inappropriate things like going and getting yourself a personal education. There's other options here. If he was really worried about it, maybe he should have thought of getting an education on this topic before he ran for counsel. So, okay, I'm gonna... Why does he have to do it at the taxpayer's expense? I bumped
0: on that because there was a Twitter user making the exact same argument earlier. And I frankly find that an absurd line right there. Because... Okay, let's get into it. All right, so here's the thing. Counselors in Edmonton, incumbent counselors get reelected. John Dean, generally, generally, Yeah. Yes. Logan was an exception and Mike Nichol was an exception. But generally, if you're an incumbent counselor and you run, you get reelected. Yeah. So you're looking at sitting in the job for at least eight years, maybe 12, 16, if you're Brian Anderson, 700. Um, <laughs> but that means you're stuck in that job for a while. If you say, well, if you needed some knowledge before, well, you should have learned it beforehand. In Brian Anderson's case, the internet wasn't invented when he (laughs) became a counselor. So are we saying that he shouldn't go and get personal development to, you know, enhance his skills to learn more? I think encouraging our counselors to learn absolutely nothing new is a really bad road to go down.
1: No, I agree with you on that point. I I didn't mean to suggest that no professional development is what I'm in favor of. I think professional development is a good thing. And clearly, the, the amount that counselors do spend on conferences and other small training opportunities, I think is beneficial. And there's a certain amount of learning on the job that comes with being a counselor, just like any other job, right? So clearly, I think it's a good thing that he learns new things to do his job more effectively. Uh, but I don't really sympathize with this idea that he got into to being a counselor and realized it was pretty difficult <laughs> and then decided he had to go and get a, a four-year degree to, to solve that problem. That's the part where I feel like that's a bridge too far. Yeah. And that's where I do feel like, well, if that's how you felt, then maybe you should have thought twice about running for a counselor. I don't disagree with you that once you're in, you should learn new things and you should find opportunities to do that. And within reason, you should maybe use some of your discred- discretionary budget to pay for that. 44000 even 20000 to me, not within reason. Yeah, I'm getting like dangerously
0: close to defending john d which is absolutely <laughs> not my intention here right it's just important that you know don't throw the baby out with a bat with water in this discussion sure. i'm finding a lot of people are saying oh well the fact that he was pursuing this degree is the problem no the fact was he was being a bit of a nimrod and like being disingenuous with his budget and the fact that he was able to instantly yeah i'll pay for it just out of pocket means he can so he probably should have
1: right uh so there's a bit of a smell test here that yeah, just did not get passed this
0: and... this reeks of like you know old like entitled pc sort right. of behavior that we've seen in politics and that's the other part of this is if it was another councilor this might have been a different discussion but of course john d ran on fiscal responsibility on cutting city hall um you know famously he had the tweet from Last year, when Pride Parade was in town, and he right. said, You know, I'm going to cut Pride Parade's funding unless I can march in my military uniform. So, like, he hasn't been very generous with budget in the past. So, to expect budget to benefit him personally, yeah. Feels a bit of a smell test there. Absolutely. Uh, some other just interesting notes. Uh, in researching this story, some of the stuff I looked into is like, Oh, well, you know, Maybe John D is the most contrarian counselor. It sh- certainly feels that way a lot. In yeah. fact, no, he's not. A uh, Mike Nickel still retains that title. I looked at the open data catalog. The people who vote most against uh, motions, still Mike Nickel this term with 120 votes against, and John D coming up with just about 80.
1: So uh, is he the second most after Nickel.
0: He is the second most. Yeah. Uh, interestingly, third place. Who do you think it goes to?
1: Oh, who would it be? Walters.
0: See, and you're you're thinking you're like, okay, well, who's the other conservative counselors? That might be a good line. It's not. It's Paquette. Paquette. Interesting. Um, Which, I mean, I guess when you really think about Paquette and you know his belligerent need for free transit, it sort of tracks. (laughs) But those are some of the interesting facts that came up while we were talking about this forty-four thousand MBA degree. And recapping the story, the story broke this morning. Yep. And by this afternoon, he was having a press release at one p.m. He had a media scrum with the media and said oh, i'm paying it back he Ooh, he tweeted
1: i think at 10 45 a.m to say that he was doing a partial repayment so yeah i mean it, it was very quickly that he flip-flopped on this
0: the story came out he doubled down on it for i think about like 35 minutes total and then it was a retraction uh if only we could get such a retraction for his opinion on traffic safety Moving on, uh, we mentioned that some business owners were feeling a little chilly about the 95th Ave closure. So TransEd, the company installing our Valley Line LRT, 95th Ave running Otwell, I think it's... Yeah, it's between Connors Road and 85th Street is yeah. uh, what they wanted to... So sure. just a bit north of Bonnie Doon Mall, there's some businesses on 95th Ave and TransEd has basically been saying, look, if we continue, you know, with delays and traffic... right. It's going to take us till about 2020 to finish this, like mid-2020. If we just close this road and work hard, we can get it done by the end of 2019. So should we rip the band-aid off? And business owners, they weren't so hot on that.
1: No, they said if they closed the transit said if they closed the road, there would still be pedestrian access, there would still be some north south crossings for cars and people, but that wasn't good enough for for businesses who were upset about the idea of closing the road. And you and I talked about this a little bit before we turned on the recorder here. And it seems a little crazy that you know the road is basically impassable as it is. Are they getting a whole ton of business from people driving through the area? Wouldn't it be better to get it done more quickly? Yeah. Isn't, so isn't this a repeat of 102 Avenue?
0: And that's the thing that it evoked in me. It's. A case where the city is sort of damned if it does, damned if it doesn't. Right. Because 102 Av wasn't a complete closure for the whole thing, but the businesses complained that construction was taking so
1: long that the reduced access forced them to close and leave. And this was the Grote Road Bridge that ended up taking longer as well than, than originally planned because yeah. things happened during construction.
0: Yeah, bent girders. But... You have these business owners saying, oh, well, look, we don't want the roads to close completely. We just want this trickle of customers to come in, whether that's better or worse than having a complete Band-Aid ripped off. I don't know. Maybe we'll need an executive MBA to tell us this. (laughs) But I'm not a business owner, but I can say as a resident of the city, I absolutely want them to rip the Band-Aid off. close. totally. And Ben Henderson came out and said basically the same thing. He's like, well, you know construction. People make the joke about there's winter and construction. If we can get the construction done, then that's a win in
1: my books. Absolutely. The thing that you and I both saw about this is pretty interesting is that uh, TransEd ultimately has the power to decide whether they want to fully close the avenue or not. Um, But a spokesman said that they would integrate public feedback and hold another public meeting in April to announce its decision. And it's just a bit surprising to us that there's no recourse here for the city of Edmonton to override that decision.
0: Yeah, so I've never been a fan of public-private partnerships, which is how the Valley Line is being built. Right. But TransEd is a consortium of private companies, and this isn't the first time something like this has come up. Uh, We had a lot of problems, especially in the South, around Millwoods, about, like, crossings to get to senior centers and specific road closures. And I know because I live in the ward, and Mike Nickel was saying things like, well, I did my best, but TransEd says they're doing this. And... I step back and think, okay, a group of companies decide to close a road and the government can't do anything about that? Is that really what we baked into this contract? And I haven't read the like 700 pages, so I don't know. But that seems like a really poor way to build an LRT. It
1: does seem really strange that there's no legal recourse here. If you are a lawyer and know something about this, send us an email and <laughs> we'll make sure to revisit this
0: topic. But I suspect what's going to end up happening is TransEd is going to close the road. Like you mentioned in the quote, they're not they're going to take feedback into consideration and then announce their decision. Right. Which seems like a very ominous and like authoritarian way of describing the situation. Really combative. Yeah. I, yeah, I suspect TransEd is just going to announce road closed. Deal with it. Moving on next to still cold topics. And this one this one we again talked in the pre-show a little bit yeah and we're normally pretty well on the same page for issues i don't
1: know that we were on this one so it was cold this week
0: and what does cold mean in our
1: city cold means for people who don't have a home or a roof over their head that they've got to seek refuge somewhere uh in some of the city's shelters of course is, is a place that they can go but I think many people understand that when it's really, really cold, um, homeless individuals or people on the street can go into the LRT stations. And that's not actually the case. It seems that Homeward Trust is now responsible for deciding when and, and when not to open the LRT stations to um, people for shelter when it's really cold. Uh, but the city did say they would open central LRT station, despite you know the shelters not being at full capacity.
0: Yeah, so jumping back, this week it was a cold snap. And in previous years when we had cold snaps... The LRT station's open. Uh, it seemed know. like it, at yeah. least.
1: We're we're not really sure about the policy, but... Don
0: Iveson would tweet, station's open, and everyone was like, yeah, good idea. Kudos, right. Don. Right. And that was the end of the story. It was interesting this week because people were sending tweets saying, hey, city of Edmonton, it's minus 40. Why aren't the LRT stations open for right. homeless people? And that came up at council this week. And what came up was that the city apparently has some sort of hybrid of policy and procedure where... We will open the stations at a given temperature, but if and only if the shelters, which Homeward Trust, through whatever metrics they use, declares that shelters are at a certain capacity. So, you know, if
1: we'd be turning people away at the shelters, then they need to go into LRT stations. It's a little trickier than that, even, because Edmonton Transit seems to have its own policy about this, saying that... You know, the stations are open 21 hours a day, and if someone was forced to take shelter there, they would not be removed. They wouldn't kick them out. So it's not clear exactly which policy wins the day.
0: I think really all that's controlling whether or not a homeless person can stay in there, it, they could. It's just this is affecting whether or not Don Iveson tweets about it. Right. Um, <laughs> so functionally, probably a non-issue for people actually struggling in the cold, other than maybe them not understanding that we can go there as an option. So maybe they don't try.
1: So let's talk about LRT stations as an option very quickly. Yeah. What are your thoughts on allowing people to use the LRT station to stay warm?
0: So when I was listening to council, I thought, you know what? This is a really good idea. This being, we don't open the LRT stations for homeless people. Uh, when the shelters have capacity, because that's what shelters are for. And shelters have things like they have on-site support staff, they have enhanced security, they have rules. Uh, If a LRT station does not have those supports, but also those enforcements, it becomes an appealing place for people who maybe don't want to follow a set of rules, which can increase vandalism, violence. And I think at the end of the day, at some point, we're going to have Someone get pushed in front of a train when they're sheltering in the cold because violence occurs in the station when there's no enforcement and we're not, we're not designating these as shelters. They're just like
1: emergency refuge.
0: So I think it's a pretty good idea.
1: The other thing about LRT stations, of course, is they don't generally have public washrooms. That's something we are severely lacking throughout the city, but especially in a LRT station. So... I think they smell like urine most of the time, but, you know, it's going to get worse. Uh, yeah, it's. If a... People are using it as shelter.
0: And of course, I was walking through Bay Enterprise Station last night, and, you know, there were two people smoking at the bottom of the stairs and fresh awash with urine that was getting mopped up. This is not how we want to be treating our public places. And now there's a compassion argument to be made. And I'm going to make it. Absolutely, people shouldn't be out in the cold. But I think if people aren't out in the cold, we shouldn't be taking them away from the places that are designated to help them but get in your
1: arguments i think when it's minus 30 minus 40 we want people to be warm and we don't want to have to worry about where they're going to go to do that if they can't go to the shelter for whatever reason some people don't feel welcome in those shelters or feel safe in those shelters at the best of times let alone when it's freezing cold Uh, i think as a city that not uncommonly gets to minus 30 we should be prepared for this hold on
0: hold on it does uncommonly get to minus 30, not uncommonly gets to minus 25. Let's not empower the Twitter warriors.
1: <laughs> it gets cold. It gets cold. It gets cold Point in Point absolutely taken. And we should be prepared for when it gets cold. Uh, to me, it, it seems like there should be some very simple things in place to help uh, address this kind of a situation. So whether that's opening the LRT stations and making sure that we've got budget set aside to staff security and to staff um, you know, uh, maintenance and clean up of those facilities once the temperature goes back up. It could be that we look to work with some partners. We already run a very successful Homeless Connect event at the Edmonton Convention Center twice a year. Maybe it's an option to open that facility up with some partners uh, when it gets really, really cold. There's better washroom facilities and, and, and things set up there to support that. I don't really know what the right solution is. It just feels to me like in a city where we do get cold, we should have an answer for this. We shouldn't let people stay outside and freeze, and we shouldn't risk that. Uh, and it doesn't seem that hard to come up with a plan.
0: When it gets to cold events, it's not all the LRT stations that open. Uh, in fact, this week, it's just central LRT station right. that's opened as a refuge from the cold. Right. Do you think in the case where someone is, you know, uncomfortable at a shelter, that central lrt station one lrt station that doesn't have specific rules enforcement does that make them feel more comfortable
1: i don't know i'm not going to try to put myself in their shoes it may or may not i think the point is if you're cold try to get indoors and, and be indoors while it's cold so that you're not going to freeze to death i think that's really really important um I, you know i think i would make the compassion argument beyond uh homeless shelters here
0: and Go ahead, be the radical one I'm on the gonna podcast do it. for a change.
1: So we already do have a policy with Edmonton Transit on buses, right? If it's very, very cold, or if it's after a certain time of day, they're supposed to let you off, not necessarily at a stop, but at a corner, right? Or, you know, somewhere along the route, so you don't have to go quite as far. I've been driving around a couple of times this week thinking to myself, it's insane that as a driver, I get a left turn advance when that poor pedestrian is standing on the side of the road freezing. Like I would like to see us when it's minus 30, stop all left turn lanes. I know that's not going to be very popular, but that would be the type of thing that a northern city that is aware that it gets that cold would do. I feel like that's not a huge ask. Yeah. And I mean, when
0: you said that... Darn did I ever bump on that. (laughs) But,
1: you know, having sat
0: in it for 15 minutes or so, it's a reasonable suggestion just that right now, Edmonton, we do the bare minimum to cope with changes. Right. When it gets cold, occasionally we'll tweet out that you can stay in an LRT station. Right. But we don't actually make any material adaptations to our form. Uh, A better city that was more readily adapting to winter might do changes like that where it says, look, okay. This just doesn't make sense at minus 30. So we should change that. Things like maybe it maybe there are outside heaters, maybe there's bus stations that have those like wire heaters and right. there's some sort of way that you can, you know, walk two blocks and find a dedicated heated refuge. That those are some changes that might exist if we were, you know, really, really committed to this winter city ideal. Yeah, it feels
1: like we've won some awards for our winter city strategy and yet we're not a very friendly winter city.
0: Do you know we're the most open city in (laughs) Canada? Tune into last week's episode to find out how that's not true either. Um, Do you have any closing thoughts on, I mean, we both agree that the solution here is to just get our asses in gear and solve homelessness. Um, These people shouldn't have to shelter, they should just have homes um, and Permanent support of housing is the only way to solve that. Uh, exactly how you do that is a matter of debate that I don't think that either of us are equipped to engage in.
1: But it is something that Edmonton is working hard at, and uh, there's an argument to be made that you're right. We should be solving the the root cause here, but. While we do that, we can be compassionate. Yeah. Help people stay out of the cold.
0: Yeah, and I mean, I just want to say I don't want people to freeze in the cold. I recognize that I was complaining about the smell of urine in an LRT station. I do recognize that it sucks to be cold and that I didn't want to go outside in the middle of the day today. And if you're in a shelter, they get ki- you can't kick it out in the day anyway. So right. we do need better solutions there. Um, But... Speaking of solutions, if you're a podcaster in Alberta, the solution to the woes of how do I afford a microphone is to join the Alberta Podcast Network powered by ADB, which supports local podcasters all across the province of Alberta. And if you live in Hazeldean, you have an extremely high density of podcaster support because my neighbor, Eric Newby, is also a podcaster in the Alberta Podcast Network powered by ATB, and he hosts a show called Pop Cycle. And they recorded a little teaser trailer, so we'll play that clip now with the magic of technology. Hey it's Eric from Pop Cycle, the Pop Culture Connections podcast. On our show we discuss just how incestuous pop culture really is, but in a really fun way. We take a chunk of culture, be it a movie, an actor, a song, a musician, or a book, and then by going as far away as possible, by way of six degrees of separation, we end up right back where we started. It's a lot of fun. So if you're so inclined, take a listen. We're also part of the Alberta Podcast Network. So you can find us via albertapodcastnetwork.com or wherever you get your podcasts. Wow. Technology is great, isn't it, Mac? It's like he was in the room. It's amazing. I love it. That's all we have time for this week. And for the people that are in this room, which is you and I, uh, we're going to encourage you to subscribe to Taproot Edmonton. What's Taproot Edmonton? I don't think our listeners are familiar with that.
1: They've probably never heard us talk about it, funnily enough. We are building the future of local journalism right here in Edmonton. We'd love to be your trusted local curator and informant, and you can learn more at taprootedmonton.ca.
0: And Taproot Edmonton, that's the room where it happens, just like Hamilton 2020. There was a connection there. (laughs) I'm sure I made it. Until next week, I'm Troy. I'm Mac. And we're speaking Speaking Municipally. municipally.